Warning, Crescent City Crime contains violent and explicit content that is not suitable for a younger audience. Some topics may be disturbing or triggering for sensitive listeners. Listen at your own risk. Thank you for listening to Crescent City Crime. If you wish to further support the show, please make sure to like, rate, and review this podcast on your preferred listening platform. We can also be found on YouTube at Crescent City Crime. You can discuss episodes with other listeners in our private Facebook group or follow us on Twitter. You can also visit our merch store. All of our social media links, show notes, sources, and more can be found in our blog, nolacrimepodcast.com. That's nola, N-O-L-A, crimepodcast.com. We are now on Patreon. On our Patreon, we feature discussions about movies that revolve around crime and offer exclusive merch. If you would like to hear that extra content from us twice a month and access exclusive merch, subscribe to us at patreon.com slash crime. We would appreciate it if you help spread the word about Crescent City Crime. Tell a friend or aggressively scream our podcast name at your enemies. The music used in this episode is The Black Fingerprint, and it was composed by Dylan Owen. Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And I wanted to start off this episode with some good news. Brian, I've got a little audio surprise for you. You're going to find out right now on this podcast that Today, we get to celebrate 50 plays total of our podcast. Every episode has been listened to at least once. Uh, the one, our first episode <coughs> on capital punishment is the one that was listened to the most. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yes, and it's very exciting because we've been at this for about a month, I think, when a month ago, as of this recording, is when I started dropping those preview episodes. And so in that space that month, we got 50 plays. I'm really happy about that. That's a, that's a good start. It Glad is a good that. start, yes. So I have a – and there's also a very a very nice woman that I met through a Facebook group uh, several years ago. Her name is Karen, and she had some very kind words to say. She said that she listened to the first epi- two episodes, and she enjoyed them. She likes the banter, and she thinks it flows really naturally. She wants to listen to more episodes, and she likes how you, Brian, adds in various tidbits from your professional and personal background. And she also appreciated that we shouted out the sci-fi community as a good place to, uh, 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 sorry, it could be a good community for young people. She appreciated that because Karen, like us, is also a nerd. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh Chances are you're not going to get into any trouble at the comic book shop, the gaming shop, or the science fiction convention. That's quite true. I think the perhaps the most trouble I've ever had at a gaming shop was when I would lose at Magic Cards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I very appreciate that very much, and I thank you, thanks to everyone for listening. And we also have a new... Uh, influx of people in the Facebook group. So thank you to everybody that I, I did invite a bunch of people and I think most of them responded. So thank you to everybody who joined us in the Facebook group now. 
And I, I did want to talk a little bit about, about a little bit about how this podcast came to be. Brian, as you know, right now we're in the beginning of 2022. And I started this project in 2020 when we were in lockdown. And it took a while to get everything together. I have a, a you know, a whole list of topics planned. I have scripts that I've researched and written, and it takes a while. But, you know, at the end, you know, all this legwork that I had to do, I feel like it was worth it. Well, yes, when you get when you get a, a podcast ready or say a broadcast of, of any kind. Uh, you typically spend more hours preparing for it than you actually spend broadcasting. That's very true. But, you know, I have wanted to do a podcast for a long time. You know this. Yeah. And it's always about finding that unique angle. You have to think of something that's not really been done. And I know that true crime is... This is kind of a saturated field. Like, you know, there's a lot of true crime podcasts, true crime documentaries... YouTube channels, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, why not? Why not throw your hat into the ring? Oh, sure, sure. And I also wanted to update you guys on, so when we did the episode on the cold cases where we mentioned Thomas Rolfs, what, what happened, I think, two days after we uploaded that episode, Brian? The case was... Uh solved they caught the murderer yeah and we will come back with another update on that in a future episode because i want to see how it plays out i want to see what happens is there going to be a trial and just as a side note um this is going to be a larger topic for another time but our current district attorney who is embattled he is facing federal charges was tax evasion, right? Yeah, most most of the, I believe it's 18 federal counts are uh, re- regarding tax evasion, uh, sad commentary on some of the voters uh, in Orleans Parish. Yeah. Uh, he was under federal indictment uh, during, during his campaign and during the election, so voters voted for him for this to be district attorney for the city of New Orleans despite a federal indictment hanging on him. And regarding federal indictments, um, the federal government moves slowly before they actually go for the indictment because they want to make sure everything is everything is right. They want to make sure all their ducks are in a row because they know when you're going up against a high-profile figure that, that the individual is going to have uh, good representation. Yes. So the, the average... Uh, you know, federal case. Fe- federal, uh, the average federal uh, uh, ass- assistant, assistant federal attorney, has to spend a considerable amount of time, you know, getting things lined up so that they can, uh, they can defend against the these high powered attorneys who command a lot um, of money, a like- lot of money because they're, uh, you know, they're very good at what they do, and and chances are. This this defense attorney has already been a federal assistant uh, U.S. attorney, so and has probably has more experience than the you know the U.S. attorney they're going up against as you know the, the, the prosecutor. 
So it took a while for this to play out. And it's still playing out. The trial, he hasn't even gone to trial yet, and I believe it's been delayed again. Yeah, that's I'm sure. <laughs> Jason Williams doesn't doesn't really mind that at all. Well, the, the point that I was really trying to make about Jason Williams is that so far in his time in office, he's been in office for over a year, and he has not bought one murder conviction yet. And right now, uh, including an appearance before the New Orleans City Council, he's pointing the finger at the superintendent of police. And, of course, the superintendent of police is pointing the finger right back at him. Yeah, there's uh, quite nothing like local politics. No matter where you live, local politics is always going to be more interesting to me than federal. Oh, of course. Yeah. The old saying goes, all politics are local. <laughs> Until they're not. Yeah, national <laughs> politics is, is a sexy topic. But, I mean, truly, the, the, the politics that affect you the most are your city and your state. Yes. And, oh, Brian, you did mention something after we recorded our last episode about a <laughs> vampire on a billboard. Yes. Uh, in that little... Uh, in that little uh, public drama that went on between um, Anne Rice and Al Copeland. Anne Rice and Al Copeland. At one point, uh, Al Copeland, uh, he, he rented this billboard to promote that restaurant on St. Charles Avenue. Um, Straya. Straya, as I like to forget it never existed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, on the billboard in the background, he had a you know, he had the a caricature of Count Dracula. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is kind of laughable as, well, you know, it's kind of silly because that's not quite the the kind of vampire that Anne Rice uh, wrote about. Uh, so Anne Rice did not write a story about Count Chocula? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, so that little bit of housekeeping out of the way. And... Over the past couple of weeks, there has been a, uh, unfortunately, a terrible tragedy who, a, a woman who was a mother of two, two teenage daughters, she had at some point separated from her husband, she got addicted to meth, and she got involved with the wrong guy, and unfortunately, he murdered her and dismembered her body and put it in a freezer. Of course, this is something else that I am paying attention to. And as soon as everything shakes out, trial, whatever, I, I wonder. <coughs> <coughs> I wonder, you know, how this is going to play out. Will it go to trial? It might not. But I want to have a resolution on this case of uh, the the victim's name was Julia Darter, and she was killed by a fucking piece of shit who had no regard for her life at all. So we are just going to wait and see what happens before we do a full episode on that. Now, all that that we've already said, Brian, are you ready to get into what today's story is about? Sure. All right. 
In 2009, a jury in Orleans Parish convicted Peter Richard Rubens of second-degree murder. Rubens was an artist as well as a building contractor. On June 29th of 2008, Rubens shot one of his employees, Robert Irwin, four times in the chest and killed him. <clears throat> While he initially claimed self-defense, the true motive would eventually emerge. Rubens owed er, wrote, do that again. Rubens owed Irwin money and was also secretly dating Rubens' girlfriend. And did you know that I have a little bit of a personal tie to this case? Yeah, he used to work at, at at the hotel. Yes, the hotel that I worked at. However, he had already came and gone. This had already happened by the time I had started working there. And I'm not sorry for trashing this guy because his art his artwork is butt ugly. I never did like the artwork in that hotel. <laughs> um, um, in fact, there was one time when I mentioned to a guest, uh, she was talking to me about how much she disliked the art, and I told her that. Rubens was a murderer, and she exclaimed, I knew it. The feet are disproportionate to the rest of the body. I knew there was something wrong with the artist. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh. So, maybe it really does show in your art. Well, unfortunately, um, some artists are actually uh, psychopaths. Well, yes, that, Apparently, that is true. Yes. Or they're killers, or they're just bad people in general. So, I mean, keep in mind that that a psychopath can very can very does not have any inhibitions regarding the taking of any life whatsoever, whether it's an animal or it's a person. Or well, what about or, like a crime or, of passion? Or a cockroach. Well, what about like a crime of passion? That's when the psycho. That's when some psychopaths manifest manifest the tendency. Hmm. Okay. I mean, keep in mind, not everybody settles these kinds of disputes by murdering someone. That's true. And the average person, the average person has tremendous respect for human life and animal life, and it it takes. It takes a lot to overcome your desire not to to kill someone. Oh, like when we were talking uh, one of the other episodes about how when somebody who has a beef with somebody sees them on the street and it just overrides everything else and they just go into that yeah. like a tunnel vision. Yeah, they yeah. go in the tunnel vision mode and they just engage, engage each other. Um. See, all psycho basically all psychopaths are sociopaths. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Keep that in mind. And the thing about sociopaths is that they they don't like they don't really have much of any conscience. They don't have right. empathy for anyone. Uh, a sociopath could be someone who thinks nothing of. Engaging in corrupt business practices, uh, you right. know, overworking employees, or they could be politicians. Right, could could be politicians. Yes, a sociopaths are going to see people as numbers. Now, um, sociopaths who are psychopaths, those are the people who can just easily take a life. Um, so there there are times in which it it 
it when some when a so when a psychopath has a disagreement with someone, that could be the the first course of action is to kill that person. Mm-hmm. Whereas the average person is not a psychopath and is not going to just want to literally kill somebody mm. to settle a disagreement. Okay. Well, there was not a lot of information about Robert Irwin, but he was 47 years old at the time of his death. He was employed by Rubens as a building foreman, and his friends called him Bobby or B. And, of course, at this time, the city, we were still recovering from recovering from Hurricane Katrina, so there were plenty of sweet contracting dollars to be made. You remember that? Like, you remember? Yes. Everywhere you had just work trucks and employees and everything everything construction yes and most notably there were there were a few unscrupulous oh yeah, yeah. definitely unscrupulous contractors so- sociopaths who were ripping people off to taking money in advance for work and then and then you know le- running away of course that's true. That did that did happen a lot, is it? which is also goes back to an, another thing that we said previously on, on this podcast is that them, that people, you know, if, if it's a legitimate contractor, they will have excellent references. They will have insurance and, and all that stuff. Yeah, they'll have an insurance bond. And, you, you know, you ask to see their insurance bonds and it's not good enough for them to just have the certificate because they could have canceled the insurance. Yeah. What you do is you you look look at the contact information on the insurance bond and call the insurance company. Yeah, to verify that they're cur- that they currently have an insurance bond. Um, but even even with a legitimate contractor, no, you don't pay you don't pay in advance for any work. You don't even pay half. It doesn't. It's uh that's not ethical. No, it's really not. And we've saw when we're talking a little bit about this, just because we did see this go down with people that we knew, mm-hmm. people getting you know shortchanged on you know on uh, on their property. There was a lot that went on in the aftermath of Katrina. So essentially, in the aftermath of every disaster, unfortunately, there's parasitic vultures who swoop in to try to steal people's money. Always. In every tragedy, there's always people like that. So, at the time, uh, well, right before Rubens was, uh, had committed this murder, he was planning to leave the city for a project in Iowa to win a debris contract removal in flooded areas of that state. There is a court document that broke down the events of the day that led to Irwin's murder, and I'm going to summarize it. Prior to Irwin's death, Rubens was living at a house that was owned by someone named Ray Manning. In that house, Rubens lived with his girlfriend, Diane. The agreement between Rubens and Manning was that he was repairing the house while he lived on the upper floor. The arrangement between Rubens and Manning eventually soured and Rubens was planning to move to Iowa. And he was going to take a group of workers with him, but... Robert Irwin was not one of those workers, and Rubens was not planning on taking his girlfriend with him either. So, with the knowledge that we have now, witnesses at trial testified that Irwin had been having an affair with Diane. He even wanted to build a life with her once Rubens was out of the picture. On the day of the murder, 
Irwin spent the day with his friends Lynette and Alan Betts. He was in the process of purchasing the Betts' motorhome, which Irwin was already living in. The Betts' had a house in New Orleans and the motorhome was parked in a driveway. That was something else that happened. You had a lot of people living in motorhomes on their property while their houses were being repaired or they had, were living in FEMA trailers on their property, etc., etc. It was It was crazy. Yeah, or people living in FEMA parks and trailers. Which we did. And having to drive and, back and forth to the property and to work it, on and it. And it really sucked. Yeah. Now, edit that part out. <clears throat> okay, that was right across the street from the house that Rubens was living in. Lynette's son, Jess Salt, and his girlfriend, Emily Shelton, drove Irwin to New Orleans that day, and Irwin had told them of his problems with Peter Rubens. He knew that Rubens and a group of his workers were soon to leave for a job in Iowa, and he wanted to get back home in order to safeguard his tools and to ask Rubens for the money he was owed. Lynette Betts was concerned about Irwin confronting Rubens and stated that Robert felt like somebody probably could die that night. Isn't that that's ominous? Oh. <clears throat> now, Jess Salt testified that Irwin told him on the ride from St. Rose, Louisiana to New Orleans, if Rubens pulls a gun on me, I will shove it up his ass. Oh. Now, despite these comments... Jess Salt and his girlfriend Emily both testified that Irwin's demeanor was calm and relaxed when they reached the house. The door to the home was open and there were men on the porch around the home. When Irwin exited the vehicle, he walked straight into the house. Eventually, Jess Salt walked up to the residence and yelled for his friend and for Robert Irwin to come from inside the house and Rubens told Salt that everything was fine. On his way back into the house, Irwin joked with the men. Jess then heard gunshots and screaming. The men who were hanging around the house were now running away. Rubens yelled, was yelling at Jess, you got a problem, I'll put you down like I put Robert down. Oh. Mm -mm. Jess did not see a gun, and he told Rubens that he could not leave until Robert came out. He looked down and he saw Robert Irwin on the floor. He could see that he had been shot. He was suffering and moving only slightly. Jess called 911 immediately, but sadly, Robert Irwin died before EMS could arrive and Rubens fled the scene. The homicide detectives on this case were Detective Long and Detective Wei Shan. They arrived on the scene about 30 minutes to an hour after the shooting. The primary scene was in an office that was located on the second level of the residence, and there were four spent 380 caliber shell casings and a spent bullet that was recovered from the scene. Detective Long's investigation revealed that all the shots were fired in the office. The secondary scene was where Robert Irwin was found on the first level of the residence, just below the stairwell. A trail of blood was discovered along the wall in the hand handrail of the stairwell, so it he tried to run. Uh, on a side note, <clears throat> basically 380 is the same diameter as 9mm. Uh, the European name for 380 is 9mm uh, short <coughs> or 
nine millimeter Kurtz in, in you know in German. And the the 380 round originated in Europe because uh, European civilians were forbidden to have for a long time were forbidden to have nine millimeter because it was a military cartridge. So the 380 developed uh, a, as a result of that, that as a civilian caliber, essentially. Okay. But it caught on over here because it was discovered that you could, uh, you know, you could design a 380 handgun as a smaller gun than a nine millimeter, more concealable. Huh. Okay. So it would. So like this could have been a gun that was in his pocket. Oh yeah, the the average three eighty pistol is 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 very easy to hide in a pocket. Well, after Rubens used that three eighty, uh, he was, you know, fled the scene. He was named as a suspect that very night, and an arrest warrant for second degree murder was obtained at eleven fifty five p.m. on the night of the killing. So that was fast. They. What do you know? What the logistics are of getting a judge to sign a warrant that late at night? It's it's going to take. Um, <clears throat> if you're lucky, it's going to take thirty minutes. If you're not so lucky, it's going to be uh, as long as like as long as two hours. Hmm. Because it's, sometimes it's. Uh, uh, I mean, detectives are only going to get a judge out of bed if it's very important. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but you know, a capital offense, yes. That 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 warrant really that important. warrants you know that warrants getting a judge out of bed at night. It does. Hmm. All right. Well, the detective searched for the defendant unsuccessfully, but later that night, when they returned to the residence, they noticed that the front porch light <clears> that was on when they had previously left the crime scene had been turned off. And that a light was on in the second floor bedroom, which had been turned off when they had left. So, see that the detectives returned to the scene and they noticed that the lights were different. So, we had talked previously about how typically the first detectives or police officers to arrive on a scene, if they arrive within a you know a short amount of time, mm -hmm. they're usually the ones that solve the case. And that happened here. Yeah, yeah. So I notice small details, but a comment I want to make about the waiting for EMTs to arrive mm -hmm. when you have someone who's bleeding, uh, you need to do something to stop the bleeding. You need to get something and apply direct pressure and stop the bleeding before EMTs arrive. Well, I'm I'm assuming that. So this was, uh, he was shot four times, right? Probably at a close range, and then he managed to get down the stairwell. Now, if he was shot at close range, I mean, four times, it obviously hit something vital. How fast is your window for that? It, it depends on where you hit. I mean, you hit four times, that's, that's of course, that's definitely multiple shock trauma. Uh, although 380s light a lighter round than a nine millimeter, uh, it really depends upon upon where you hit. But he was probably already bleeding out while he, when he was walking down the stairway, which unfortunately that hastened his bleeding. Yeah. Uh, but like uh, 
the worst thing you could do if you call an ambulance for someone that's bleeding is wait, wait, just just wait for the EMTs. No, you have to you have to find the entry wound, and if there's an exit wound, you got to find that too, and you have to apply something to stop the bleeding. Right. Um, a shirt, a tablecloth, a Kotex. Yeah, a Kotex, even a, even a tampon itself would. Yeah, very, very, very effective because Kotex is very similar to, to like a compress that EMTs and like the military, uh, military use. Uh, j- just, just the same as like if somebody has drowned in a pool, you call EMS. Don't just wait for them to get there. Try rescue breathing. You got to do rescue breathing. You know, tilt, tilt their head, administer two full breaths. Okay. And pump the and then the chest. and then and then curve the head. To, to see if the water comes out, but keep administering breaths until the water comes out and or they start breathing again on their own. Right. Okay. Because there's uh the brain's got about a ten minute window. Right. J- j- just just for example. So now is that is that ten minute window death or brain damage? Brain dead. Okay. So okay. like so like you would be on a respirator. If you live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just, just wait for that. That That's why the Red Cross teaches first aid. That's why, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts learn mm-hmm. first aid mm-hmm. because he gets it out to the community that just waiting for EMS is just not good enough. That's uh, because if someone receives first aid of some kind before EMS arrives, then that can make all the difference in the world. Right. And... That that's very true, and you know, I, I know it's hard, and we will talk about this on a different <laughs> podcast. But you know, I am not. Sometimes I can be calm in an emergency, but you're really good at emergencies, and we will talk about that later in a different podcast because I actually am really impressed with how you handle emergencies. Yes, I've had a colorful life, and I've been through a few emergencies. I guess you have. Okay, so after the detectives noticed the difference in the lights being on and off in the house, they called the tactical unit, and the tactical unit found Robin's, I'm sorry, Ruben's hiding in the attic. So he was he was there. He went back to the house, and he hid in the attic after he left the evidence of the lights being on and off. Yeah, diligent detectives and police officers are going to find you whether you're hiding in the attic or you're hiding under the house. If they think they're hot, you're hiding under the house. Uh, they'll bring a dog. Yeah, they will. And now, most of the time, what they do is they threaten to let the dog loose, to physically grab you by the leg, and drag you out from underneath a house. Which you know, one of those strong uh, shepherds or malamutes. Malamutes or mal or um. Or Malinois. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can dra- can just grab you by the leg and drag you out from underneath the house, and it's very unpleasant. So usually the suspect will come out from underneath the house voluntarily. We, we know somebody, a police officer, who got bit by a police dog. Do you remember? Yes. He had yes. a big, big bite on his leg. Yeah, he's retired now, so it's okay. Uh, Sergeant David Liang, it was during uh, evacuation for... Uh, which which hurricane was it? Was it after Katrina? It was one that came after Katrina. Maybe it was um, 
Is that I, I Ivan? Was it Ivan? Maybe? I, I think I think I think so. Um, and there was this deal to where the the dog bit into his thigh instead of the suspect. Yeah. And he very calmly let the dog handler remove the jaws from his skin, and then he simply uh, he applied pressure to stop the bleeding, and he finished his shift, and then he went to the emergency room. And he still has the scars from from the bites on yeah, his thigh. Yeah, he does. And so, so yeah, if you're gonna commit a crime, you don't want the dog's jaws on you. It will hurt. Yes. Uh, so Just give so yourself up. Give yourself up before the dog gets involved. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the scene, Detective Long advised Rubens of his rights immediately. You know, like your right to remain silent. For example, yeah, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Rubens immediately began saying that he had to kill Bobby because Bobby was coming after him with a pencil. Oh, oh, a pencil. Yes. Okay. Now, <laughs> I do understand. Daisy. That's that, uh, legally okay. Legally, in the state of Louisiana, a pencil can be considered a deadly weapon. Okay. Right, but that's a situation that is is very gray for two reasons. One, it's a pencil, and you have to be in a very certain position to actually harm somebody with it. Like you would have to, I imagine, like you'd have to stick it in their eye or in their ear or something. Right, but going with uh, you know, of course, Louisiana legal terminology, a reasonable person would not feel threatened. By someone pointing a pencil at them, that right in in in, mo, in most situations, especially if you have a gun, right? Exactly. I would imagine if somebody's coming after you with a pencil, if you drew a gun on them, they would probably drop the pencil and leave. Probably would. I mean, you could even use the use the gun to uh, you could hit them with the gun. Well, that's Physically, true. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, to defend yourself, but I mean, like a pencil, a reasonable person's not going to feel threatened by a pencil. But the other reason why, of course, that's gray is that he knows the victim, you see. Yes. So self-defense claims become highly questionable if you know the victim, mm. you see, uh, because that it, 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 it's, it's very gray. It's very complicated. <laughs> I mean, at, at that point, yes, you, you're, you're going to go to trial because you, you, know, you know the victim and the uh, – it needs it needs to be sorted out. It has to be hashed out. Hmm. Well, when Detective Long asked Rubens where the gun was, Rubens claimed that he had dropped the gun by the body. He said if he still had the gun, he would have killed himself, which I really, really doubt. Yeah, I doubt that too. That's just, uh, he's just trying to... Um... Play on someone, play on the someone's sympathies there. And it was after this when Rubens invoked his right to counsel. So he did shut up, but not sued enough to not incriminate himself. Well, anything you say before you invoke your right to counsel is going to be admissible because he, at that point, when when he confessed to them on the scene, he was already waving his his right okay yes now, he he was now he was already told he had the right advised he had the right to remain silent 
and then he waived his right, and then he assumed, you know, then then he reserved his rights af after he confessed. So that confession's absolutely admissible. And we're going to circle back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with um, expensive attorneys. And while expensive attorneys are a part of rich people justice, you know what else is a big part of rich people justice? Being quiet. Don't tell them anything. Don't say anything. Just be quiet. Do not try to explain your side of the story. Just be quiet. Yes, because you can... <clears throat> not everyone understands laws of deadly force or, or anything involving, say, reasonable force when it, when it comes to, like, uh, the application of physical force. So you can unwittingly confess to an additional crime. Yes. If you're being, invest if you're being investigated by, by the police. And when the police say, oh, we just want to talk to you, what they're really doing is they're trying to get you to say something. Yes. Oh, yes. And so just be quiet. And some detectives, they, they want to get you to incriminate yourself so they can just have something to charge you with. Yes, that's very true. Detective Long contacted another detective named Garcia, and Garcia had remained at the Manning residence, and he and Garcia was asked to conduct another canvas of the office to see if she could locate a pencil out of place. There was no pencil out of place, and the gun was never found. Rubens always admitted to shooting Irwin, but he claimed that it was self-defense since Irwin walked into his home without having called or knocked first. Even though Robert Irwin was unarmed, the defense attorney Eric Hessler claimed otherwise. Hessler attempted to argue that Irwin entered his home without knocking and proceeded to attack Rubens with a thick carpenter's pencil. So it wasn't just like a little number two pencil. You were saying it was one of those thick carpenter pencils. You know what I'm talking about? That's still, that's still I, it, it grasping is, at straws. It is still grasping at straws. <laughs> but I just wanted to clarify, just in case people were thinking a number two pencil, know that they were saying it was a carpenter's pencil. That yeah, that's still pretty. That's still pretty flimsy. Well, the prosecution uh, promptly mocked this claim, and the. In response to this, the defense attorney held up a contractor's pencil in the courtroom and waved it at the jury and said, you want to take this back and stab each other with it to see if you can cause great bodily harm. So he wanted the jury to stab each other with this pencil. And of course, that as, as reasonable people uh, on a jury, which, you know, after, uh, after Boyd Deer, the pre, you know, the screening process. Everyone who's on the jury is considered to be a reasonable person. And I've never made a pass for dear. I've never actually sat on a jury. Yes, and I, I've never sat on a jury when I played a juror on television once. Yes, you did. That's true. That's very yeah. true. I yeah. Epi episode one of BJ Novak's uh, new show, which is which can be screened uh, on on Hulu, streamed on Hulu. It's called the premise, right? 
Uh, yeah, the show is called The Premise, and I'm in. I'm, I'm one of the jurors in the middle of the jury wearing a green polo shirt. And I get I got quite a bit of face time because BJ liked my reactions. Oh, and you should and, tell him how about the the Dunder Mifflin mask. Yeah, yeah. The second day of filming, I wore a Dunder Mifflin uh, COVID mask to the set that we bought at Walmart. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that got BJ's attention. <laughs> Pretty quickly, and he, he had his uh, the the person, the biographer of the set, take a picture with us together, uh, with him giving me a fist bump with the with the uh, with the B, with the Dunder Mifflin mask on. Uh, but anyway, um, so um, yeah, you're gonna have a jury of reasonable people, and as I said earlier, whether it's a number two pencil or in this case, uh, even a carpenter's pencil. Uh, no reasonable person is going to feel threatened by that. And it's very likely that the victim didn't even threaten him with a carpenter's pencil in the first place, that the the assailant probably just made that up. Uh, yeah, it does just, sound just, made just, up. Just cooked it up. Um, as, you know, murderers with, who, who claim self-defense will, uh, will really, really grasp at straws. Uh, they, they don't give their attorneys much to work with, so, you know, they make their attorneys look stupid by, you know, with, with these kinds of defenses. Yeah. You know, even though the attorneys are not stupid, it's just that it's all the attor defense attorney has to, to work with. Well, the jury also thought this was nonsense, and they returned a guilty verdict in less than two hours. Which is fast for a murder case. That is, is incredibly fast. fast for a murder case. The court document has a lot more information in it than what we've summarized here on this episode today. Uh, of course, I will link the document on our blog, nolacrimepodcast.com. So if you're curious about it, you can look at it for yourself. Brian, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up tonight? Yes. If um, police or detectives come to talk to you about a... Um, you anything about 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 just about anything. Um, Be quiet. You, yeah, you may want to you may want to consider lawyering up. Um, of course. Um, now this does not apply <clears throat> if you are a witness to something. If you are a witness to something, or if you have videotape of something, you know that that's different. You're not going to be in trouble if you hand over evidence. Right. This is not the same as cooperating with an investigation of someone else. Right. It's pretty obvious when you're the one being investigated. It is. And and an example now. Now I can give you an example of a lady in Florida who just simply told the police everything. She had a restraining order against this ex-boyfriend. The ex-boyfriend kicked, literally kicked her door in, came in, and she fired at him. She Instead of shooting at him, she fired what she told the police were warning shots. Okay, now he retreated after she fired her, quote, warning shots, okay? But she made the mistake of telling the police that she fired warning shots. Now, warning shots oh. in most states are illegal because... What you do is you're you're 
you're risking property damage to other people's property, and you're also risking hitting an innocent person so, like, when you it, fire a warning shot. It's better to tell the cops I tried to shoot him and I missed. Correct, correct. I feel you, you, I mean, you cry, okay, get very emotional, and you go into tears, and you explain, you explain to the police that I was, uh, I, I you have to, you have to say that you, you, you felt threatened, you feared for your life. Which I, I imagine okay. you did, though. If you're scared enough to even just fire warning shots at somebody, you're probably scared for your life. Right. Um, well, what wound up happening to the lady? Did she go to jail? Yes. <gasps> oh. Yes, she did. But I, I believe she she eventually, because of public outcry, um, the governor of Florida pardoned her. Okay. But not before she spent... Almost a year in jail. That's bullshit. Because these th these you know these things move. They don't exactly move fast. It's still bullshit. Yeah. Of oh of of course of course it was, and I don't think it was very nice of the of the police to just charge her with that crime, considering the circumstances that essentially this was a home invasion. Well, this also happens a lot to women. I think in general is that women are not believed when these crimes are committed against them. That, that is an a unfortunate fact of our society is that women are just not believed. They probably they probably thought that uh that she staged the so called break in part the door and that they were had that it was another domestic thing. Even though he she had a restraining order against him, he wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. Well I was also thinking about how <laughs> I'm sure you remember just a few short months ago the Gabby Petito case, the uh, Gabby, Gabby Petito disappearance, right? Yeah. So uh, there is so before he before she was killed, somebody had called nine one one because somebody saw Brian hitting Gabby in the van. Mm. Okay. When the police got there, Brian was very calm. Much like a probably like a sociopath, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she was hysterical. She was crying, and you, the body cam footage is infuriating. I really don't want to get into it right now. It is out there. It exists. Anybody can go watch. But it's infuriating how the cops treated Gabby because they made her out to be the aggressor when she's a. I mean, she was a little bitty thing. I don't think she could. She couldn't weigh no more than 120 pounds, and he was. Yeah, it, you know, it, a big it, guy. It's unfortunate so, that it seems too many times, and I, I too many times, in particular male cop, uh, male cops, uh, assuming the female is the aggressor. Which, yeah, there are many instances where the female is the aggressor. Highly emotional and gets violent. There are time. There are too many times when the female is not the aggressor, but then gets treated by law enforcement as the aggressor, and usually it's because um, it's a person who doesn't know how to talk to the police, or doesn't decide to exercise the right to remain silent. Just like getting back to the lady in Florida who was put in jail for firing warning shots. She would she would have been better off just not telling the cops anything and lawyering up, right? Than 
telling them that she fired warning shots. Uh, so another side note, uh, if you own a gun for self-defense, educate yourself on all the laws of your state applicable to deadly force. You know, when what you can do with a gun, what you're not allowed to do with a gun. And and also go to the shooting range. Practice with. Well, yeah, get get your get get your get your training. You know, take the uh, take the personal protection course. Now it's the concealed carry class. Take the concealed carry class. But before that, you take a basic marksmanship class. Uh, and even if, if if you're up to it, take a dish take additional training because the more training you have. Uh, the better, and also the more training you have, the less likely you are to actually shoot someone, because the more confidence you have with a gun, the less likely you are to panic when you're holding one. You see, the more the more practice you have with it, it's just the same as the average construction worker is is not afraid of of heights of of well not afraid of heights and not of we're talking about tools of the trade. Oh, okay. is, is not afraid of ha of driving nails with a hammer. He's not or afraid of his a power saw. Or, right, okay, right. The, right. These tools are an extension of, of himself. So ideally, your self defense handgun should be an extension of yourself. You should be very familiar with it, and have you know have good training with it, um, because then you're you're actually less likely to shoot anybody. If you have more, if you have more experience, if you have this confidence. All right. Well, that is really good advice, and it it is true. I we haven't been to the range in a little while, and we really should go again. But I'm pretty confident that if somebody were crazy enough to try to break into this house where we have four large dogs, and if you get past the dogs, um. I think that that would be the point where I where I feel like oh, better go grab the handgun, and you know. You know, by that point they're probably going to be staring down. Yes. Uh, staring down something, but the that's another thing. Dog dogs are wonderful. Dogs are protective, and it's a good deterrent. Yeah, criminals are very unlikely to enter your house if they hear dogs barking. I also want to think that. If you're a a burglar who's not interested in hurting people, you just want to steal stuff. You probably don't want to hurt a dog, or or get hurt by a dog. Well, that's true. <laughs> but if if somebody, I, I would imagine if somebody's just really a terrible person, and they just wanted to get in your house no matter what, they would be willing to hurt animals to get to your house. It depends on how desperate they are, or if they have knowledge of what you have in the house. Oh, that's uh, true. Yeah. Well. Okay, so that, that was a, a lot of final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to wrap up here, dear listeners, and next week we're going to discuss crimes committed by wealthy people in New Orleans. So goodbye, dear listeners. We will talk to you again soon. Remember, folks, if it's dark and it seems dangerous, don't be there in the first place. Good night. Good night and stay safe.